Lots of news, as you would suspect. We haven't had a full weekly update in a couple of weeks, and uh, therefore we say let's get started. Malcolm Honeline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honeline, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate that. Um, one aspect, uh, I, I, obviously the draft law has now passed in Israel, and we'll, uh, we, we could discuss it to whatever degree you think it's important to get into. I have a feeling that the majority of our listeners have been following that story pretty closely. Um, but, but one of the things that so many of my listeners have asked me to ask you is um, about the gathering that took place this past Sunday, and this is not this is not to express opinions whether whether it's a good idea, bad idea, etc. Obviously, those decisions are in the hands of some pretty responsible community leaders, and I'm sure you'd agree with that. <clears throat> the question that people had was: Were people like yourself consulted? Because uh, who better than you would know what type of impact this would make, both in the secular media and uh, among government officials who may not be as familiar? with our community as uh, as some of us are. Uh, so the question was, uh, were you consulted or at least asked your opinion regarding a gathering like this taking place outside of Israel? Well, it's complicated because it's not just uh, this event. I mean, it was involved when the first time that they planned to do a demonstration. Uh, and in this one, I was not involved at all. So you weren't consulted. Um the draft law is now is now going to be a law. The question is what's going to happen in terms of its implementation. One of the uh, obvious things that was stated is that a lot of these things take a long time to implement, and uh, there could be a new prime minister in Israel. You never know when there could be a brand new prime minister, right? We've seen we've seen in a matter of months where all of a sudden new elections are called and there's a complete change. So in the in the uh, near future, is much going to change? legally or procedurally when it comes to the draft in Israel? It is going to be in, implemented in stages, as you said, and the the real implementation built into the legislation is for after the next election, which inevitably has to take place, I think, in 2017. Um, that, that Netanyahu's term, 2016 maybe, uh, it would end. Right. And... Uh, and certainly it could end much earlier than that. So the thought built in by some into the legislation is that before you have final implementation, they'll have another election, things change. Uh, and I suggest also that people read the actual legislation before they jump to conclusions about it. Right. Uh, I am troubled by, by particularly the criminalization part. Uh, we had assurances that it will never be implemented, uh, but also insurances that it wouldn't be included. And you know, it's subject to so much interpretation. There are many people who have called me and said, look, this is the best deal you'll ever get. This is the, you know, it's a strong thing. There's a lot of considerations. The, the terms are not onerous as, as one-sided as it's been presented. So I suggest that everybody first read it, and then we can have a discussion about it. The, um, so what's obvious is that the next election in Israel, and this might be overstating the obvious, the next election campaign in Israel could hinge on a lot of arrangements, suggestions in this area of Israeli law. Right? Could be that, that, that this could end up being the biggest issue in the next election in Israel because of the possibility that a new administration could alter things. It, this could be an issue in the next election. Um, I, I don't know, you know, <coughs> whether that means 
it'll end up being positive or negative issue in the election right. uh, because Israelis across the board have strong feelings on this on both sides of the issue right. and uh, the majority of Israelis clearly support uh, some adjustments some change in the current situation so it can play both ways but in the question is now between now and then how it's implemented and I heard the chief of staff this week uh, the, the chief of the IDF staff say that, look, I want them to remain Haredim. If we, we want them, they're smart. We want to help educate them. We want to help them get into the workforce. We um, believe that they can play a, a constructive role. They don't have to compromise their, their status as Haredim. He said, I want them to come in as Haredim and live, leave as Haredim, and that they will do whatever is necessary to try and accommodate it. The degree to which that's uh, possible, some we've already seen, the Nacha Haredi and other groups, um, which uh, elements in the Israeli army were Haredim, and I saw myself when I was there this past month, who are not part of the Haredi, but guys from B'nai Brak and elsewhere who are in some very exclusive units of the IDF, training and becoming uh, high-tech whizzes and other things, uh, other key positions. So it's, it's such a complicated issue, and it's, it's, it involves such strong feelings. But I would hope that everybody who took the time for Yom Tevilah last Sunday would take time this Sunday, even though it's Purim, or today, to pray for the IDF that is fighting now in Gaza against a hundred rockets, or more than a hundred rockets, um, that have been fired at Israel against terrorist entities that want to kill Jews, and that we should all be thinking about them today and the people who fall within the range of those rockets. And we'll get to those attacks in a moment. I just a final point on this. Have you ever sat through a serious discussion in Israel about the Israeli army becoming a volunteer army? Have you ever sat through or heard anybody from the IDF say that it might be time to just open it up as a volunteer army? Because obviously you'd get people who are you know completely motivated for the cause. And you know, frankly, for for many people, it's a it's a great career. And in this day of, uh, of technology, when, when, when hopefully the country is not at war, we may not need as many men and women uh, in the actual uh, ranks as you would during a difficult time. Have you ever heard that being a serious proposal in Israel? Absolutely. I think there are very serious people thinking along those lines and other lines about what it means. But the principle of universal service is something that is widely held. It's not a Zionist ideal. This is a national ideal. This is when you are a citizen, you have responsibilities. It's not just to take from the state. It's also to give. Learning, I think, is something that adds to the security of the state. But there's also shared responsibilities. And I think the balance is what's important. But I absolutely heard very serious people, including the members of the IDF and, and government officials who have debated it. In many cases, people feel it's not practical, that it doesn't work, it you know, becomes an elitist army or... Uh, you know, an army for those who who needed to be integrated into workforce, and that you lose some of the best. Uh, that's that. There is a value in everybody sharing in the responsibility. Young people knowing that this is, you know, a rite of passage and a, a responsibility that they have. Uh, and the army is an integrating force. It is some. It has produced, uh, in part, the startup nation miracle right. uh, in these special units that uh, these young people come out of and go into. <laughs> into the high-tech world with all these creative new ideas. I think here in the U.S., when it became a volunteer army, 
the admiration that young and old had for the United States Armed Forces went up. I think there's a totally different attitude than what, of course, we went through, uh, you know, periods like the 60s and the draft and the demonstrations, et cetera, et cetera. I would think if it would happen in Israel and if it was practical and all that, we might see people who today would never be vocal for support for the men and women of the IDF, you know, all of a sudden start showing some appreciation, you know, from, from their angle. Just a thought. Karsatov should be shown, no matter what, it's not because of what it impacts us, it's because of what they're doing and the incredible uh, things that the IDF does all the time, public and private, and, you know, their efforts for Jews around the world, the efforts in humanitarian causes, aside from what they do to defend the state. Uh, the cities of Ashdod, Ashkelon, Stay Road, and others, th- th- this is the first rocket fire of this magnitude since when? This is the worst since uh, before the Gaza War. Oh, boy. So this is pretty serious what happened this week. Oh, this is very serious. Even even before the Gaza War, you didn't have it in such concentrated numbers, um, you know, straight through the, the last few days. People don't know the, the extent of it, but it's... It's really a lot, and you, and you had last night alone, um, as of this morning, I did not check uh, since Friday morning Israel time, more than two dozen rockets hit in southern Israel, most of them in, uh, or almost all of them in open spaces, which means not hitting a civilian population, except the, the Iron Dome intercepted five, which means that the computers showed that they may have hit, they, that they might have been targeting a civilian population, and therefore um, the Iron Dome is activated. The Israeli Air Force hit launching sites and munition warehouses in response, and IDF tanks shelled some of the targets inside Gaza, and the um, uh, as this Major General uh, Turgeman, who heads the Southern Command, uh, said on Israel radio, uh, after 100 rockets were fired, after people had to hide in shelters, and schools were closed and sent the kids' homes, this is what war looks like. And the, there was a special security cabinet meeting. I mean, this is serious. This could easily escalate into a full operation. Is it Hamas? That's a very good question. And the answer is that it's definitely Islamic Jihad in coordination with Hamas. And it also tells us, uh, links to the story of the ship, the Iranian ship, the Klasi, that took place while we were off the air, uh, and those missiles, which were manufactured in Syria of Chinese design, that went to Iraq, departed from Iran on the way to Sudan to end up in Gaza, but to go, I believe, to Islamic Jihad in Gaza, not Hamas. Hamas and Iran have improved their ties. You remember they right. broke over the war in Syria because the Hamas supported the Palestinians against Assad, and the Iranians uh, cut their funding and relationship and now they're re-establishing the relationship and there's supposedly more coordination and cooperation and perhaps uh, supply part of it coming out of desperation because the gaza has been cut off from its financial sources through the closing of, of hundreds and hundreds of tunnels by the egyptians and of the crossings uh so that their situation internally has become much worse and this they reach out to anybody they can in order to get money and get uh support so islamic jihad had been a be- the major beneficiary now Hamas is, is trying to eat at that same trough. So there's more of a united effort in Gaza. It is m- more than just one party. And it's hard, I think, for Islamic Jihad to operate on the border without Hamas knowing it. 
And this all started because three guys, and, and when you listen to the news reports, again, you see the distortionist misrepresentation. always says Israel's uh, planes hit targets in Gaza after missiles were fired. Mm-hmm. Why don't they say missiles were fired on Israel and Israel responded to protect its citizens and carefully responded in hitting depots of, of weapons and stuff and avoiding civilian uh, populations. And the, the nature of the attacks the escalation of the attacks is something no country in the world would tolerate, and there has been muted comment about it. We noticed that Mr. Abbas has nothing to say about the rocket attacks, only about the response. They, they, uh, the world has nothing to say about the Class C with, with uh, all of those long-range rockets, by the way, manufactured in Syria, as I said, which tells us that their missile business and the manufacturing capacity is bigger than what perhaps people thought and was assessed uh, earlier. The, uh, so the, it's a long answer to your question, but the answer is that both are involved, but the actual operational part is probably uh, Islamic Jihad, and three of their members were killed along the border. What they're trying to do is drive Israel back from the border, that they will control the border area. Israel will never allow it because they know that they're planting bombs, they're, they shoot rockets, they establish themselves there, and then want to kidnap Israeli soldiers. Yeah, well, if they're doing this without control of the border. Then... Well, why, yeah, why, would they, yeah. why would they allow them to do it? And, uh, and then we're going to hear demands. You'll see. That well, will, Isra- back. will Israel's response be enough to quell a further escalation? In this case, if you were dealing with rational people, the answer would be easier. It'll depend on what the people of Gaza do, how they react to it, and uh, whether Hamas uh, reigns it in. Islamic Jihad operates like a kid who smacks somebody and say, oh, the ceasefire, you know, let's, let's stop fighting, let's stop fighting. As soon as the other guy puts his arms down, he slaps him again. Right. And they keep firing, calling for a ceasefire, using Egypt's good offices. And then as soon as they don't, they, they uh, then attack again, and then they call for another ceasefire, you know, saying that they're hearing. That, that as soon as they signed the first ceasefire, they shot 17 rockets in the two hours afterwards. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. All right, the whole world is watching what's happening in the Ukraine. There are threats that the United States is issuing forth, especially uh, timing-wise, um, uh, referring to early next week, that if Russia does not uh, in fact, back down, the United States is going to, maybe you could shed some light on this. What is the United States' threat to the to um, Russia, and what happened? What, what, in your opinion, will happen if Russia does not, uh, um, does not uh, conform to it? Look, this is a very serious situation. I mean, it's a reversion to Cold War era. If America had more credibility, if the West had more credibility, they have none in Ukraine, and I met with Ukrainian officials and people and speak to them there. And, That's because uh, what? They feel let down by the U.S.? They feel left down by the West. They, they cite Merkel as being the toughest. They feel that, um, I mean, nobody wants to see a rush to war. And, you know, the options for the president are, are somewhat limited. But the problem is not just from this. It goes back to the Syrian confrontation. It goes back to other things. The, what we did in Georgia, the fact that we didn't confront the Georgia the Russian occupation of Abkhazia and Ossetia, uh, that, uh, I mean, there are a lot of things, a lot of preludes to this, but also because Putin tests the West, they look at what's happened, and 
you know, even the chemical weapons agreement with Syria, we see that it's not being enforced. And the West has very little option. And the fact that we pulled back from that confrontation at the time, which uh, some, uh, can be argued, said, well, we, we have this deal now. But the fact is that the war continues, that there's no, there's no control over it. I think Assad is consolidating his position in, in Aleppo and Damascus. The terrorist groups are fighting each other. The al-Nusra is, is uh, being, being attacked now by a coalition of the other groups, including al-Qaeda. So it's, it's uh, the ISIS, rather, is being attacked by a group, including the al-Qaeda al-Nusra uh, group. There are so many factors. But what, are, what's, what is the U.S. demanding? The U.S. demands that Russia get out by Monday? So, so here's the... The issues are are more complex because what what you have is a, a, a referendum scheduled for Sunday, uh, which everybody calls illegal aside from the people there and in in Russia, the Russians. Uh, this is a very popular move in Russia for Putin uh, to reassert and he wants to reassert obviously the old Soviet Empire, mm-hmm. the former Soviet Union. He's he's doing it not just there, but you see the reaction in places like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, elsewhere. Uh, who fear that the, the same thing, and who have told us of the pressure they've been under from Russia for a long time. But there's no countervailing pressure from the West that, that helps them. In fact, they just demand more reforms and more, more uh, uh, changes by them without really acknowledging the pressures they're under and, and seeing the reality of what Putin is doing. Putin will act and press as long as he doesn't meet resistance. Right now, there is no force. The, the Ukrainian army is not capable of withstanding a Russian assault for an hour for two hours that's it and the the overwhelming power of of russia in this regard they also have you have all the oil and gas considerations that europe is dependent upon it etc and others as well you have uh, the economic implications of this and at a time when ukraine is in terrible economic straits you get a billion dollars from the united states and loan guarantees etc this is hardly a dent in in the terrible economic conditions we hear food is not available in a lot of places uh because of the you know hoarding and because of the shortages and the lack of shipment across borders and within the the ukrainian area crimea has a special status it was turned over in, in previous agreements but the russians had bases there uh they may be able to work out some sort of special status agreement that would recognize the, the unique Russian interest in the fact that the majority of the population are Russian-oriented. You also have the big Tartar population there that doesn't want to go back under the Russians. You have other minority populations, and you have 17,000 Jews in, in Crimea alone. Wow. And the number in all of the Ukraine varies between estimates of 100,000 to 500,000, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, but it is a very significant population. It is not true that there have been widespread anti-Semitic attacks. There's been a lot of stories. Some say it's Russian propaganda. Some say it's other things. There were incidents. There were a limited number. And the government, including yesterday in an attack in Kiev, reacted immediately to it. Uh, so the Jews are not the issue here, and we should, they should not become the issue. Uh, right now we care about their protection and the fact that they have what they need. There isn't a mass emigration uh, even though there are some people, obviously, who have talked about Aliyah and begun a process, but I don't think it's it's in very significant numbers. You mentioned that you spoke to Ukrainian officials this week. Are they anticipating, therefore, that the I don't know that either the country will be split or there'll be a complete takeover? Like, I mean, they do realize 
that the West is not, it, it seems as if the West is not going to be uh, able to withstand whatever Russia decides to do in the Ukraine. Right. And nobody wants a war on all sides. And where are they leaning but, toward? They're leaning toward there's going to be a, an East and West Ukraine or there's going to be a complete takeover by Russia? Very good question. The answer is probably all of the above, that their fear is that Russia not, doesn't want to take over all. They want to take over the eastern part, you know, the closest, the people where the people are closest to to them, uh, and and Crimea and link them together. Um, people throw in uh, other areas where where you know you can see how the tie-ins would work. Um, so the Moldovans have to look at this and say, "Oh my God, we're next." Or others are looking at this and saying, "You know, we're seeing the pressure already. It's building up in the same way that it built up with the Ukraine." There is a lot of nationalistic support for this. This is a, a, an old uh, goal of many in, in Russia of, of restoring the previous control over over these areas, but particularly where you have a Russian-speaking majority who identify with Russia and less so with Europe. There are others who who are angry that they weren't admitted into the EU, and, and they want to see where NATO is. They want other uh, actions to be taken. Remember, some of this had to do with the placement of missiles in, in the Ukraine. Ukraine voluntarily gave up its, uh, its nuclear weapons, and they say, you see, we, we comply. There's an agreement that was signed by all of these parties, and nothing happens. There's no defense for it. Why? It sounds like you're telling us that the majority of Russians, because it, it, when Putin does this, he has the support of the people, it sounds like. So the majority of Russians want to see... Russia, you know, take over other areas and revert back, as you just said, to, you know, the way things, the way things were pre-Glasnost and all that. Um, wh- why is that so much the prevailing attitude? And were all these people just sitting by in the last 20 years as the breakup took place and as, and just conv- and people like Putin were just convinced that, you know, the moment they're able to, they'll be able to revert things back to the way they were? Well, first of all, Russia was weak. The economics were weak. The, the, the Putin, I think, is feeling his oats right now, and he plays off the weakness of the West. He sees that there's very little resistance. You know, he's played a, a role, a, a something times an obstructionist role vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Syria, promoting his own interests, even though they may not be really the long-term interests of, of Russia. Um, and, you know, he's a shrewd guy. He's, he's not somebody to be dismissed. Russia's power, in truth, is limited. The West really wants to mobilize, especially with the United States and the There is no match in Russia today. Their economic conditions doesn't support it, won't support it. The the military is uh, is not to be dismissed, but it's not uh, you know as modern with the technology, et cetera, that the U.S. and other Western countries have. So there there could be a showdown and a stand down by. Uh, Russia is confronted with the right kind of, of approach. The other hand, you have to take into account Russian pride, Russian things. We always think about the other side's pride, but not thinking about how the status and, and the respect for the West is, is impacted by, uh, uh, by all of this. So you actually outlined again a, a lot of the dilemma that we face today, uh, that they, they face, the Ukrainians face. The... By the way, Assad... Assad must love all of this. He loves it because it's taken attention away. I mean, when's the last time we saw Syria in the headlines? <laughs> and because the the chemical weapons are not being disposed of as promised, the uh, the pressure on them, and we don't know how to impact the P5 plus 1 with Iran. They could either try to show that they're good citizens and continue to participate and comply, or 
they can be more obstructionist than they have been and take up Iran's cudgels more um, because that's where they see their interests. They, they do have a fundamental interest in Syria in terms of Latakia, which we discussed many times, the naval base. The, it's their warm water ba- uh, base, the only one they have in the Mediterranean. Uh, you see them uh, extending their power with, through their navy, which, again, they, they have no aircraft carriers. They're not uh, uh, mobile like we are or could be. Um, so Assad is looking at all of this now. Yeah. And, they, you know, they're talking um, about, um, um, uh, you know, an election coming up. Syrian, the, the government, the Syrian government, uh, just approved the new election law uh, in the last few hours. So they're they're looking to go to an election. Of obviously Assad will run again, but as I've said for from the first day of this, as long as Assad keeps Damascus and Aleppo, he will stay in power. And right now they're consolidating their holds there, even if they're losing some of the areas in the south, and mainly because the fighting, a lot of the fighting is diverted between the rebel groups, uh, and we've seen escalations in other areas. We saw Hezbollah took very heavy losses in fighting recently against uh, against the rebels. So we have to see what will happen when the winter ends, and we're going to see new assaults and new escalation uh, in, in on many fronts, I think, in Syria. Syrian and Russian alliance is strong, right? Very strong. Where does Iran to supply weapons along with Iran? Where does Iran fit in? As strong as the Syrian-Russian uh, relationship, their relationship with Russia at the moment? It was stronger. Even stronger. And uh, when you say new elections in Syria, uh, so obviously those of us in the West become suspicious about how an election like that would work. Would the United States actually take a position in an election like that and uh, be vocal about being anti-Assad, or will they completely stay out of it? Good question. Uh, the U.S., I mean, the, the West doesn't help anybody because there's no real support for, for the West. There's disappointment about how the West has uh, interfered, how the West has supported, how the West has uh, expressed itself in regard to the, uh, to the rebel groups. And so it's not like they'd look at this as an opportunity to finally get Assad out. That's not realistic. I mean, look, we help the uh, groups within in the country and I'm sure we would try to see what alternative, if there's a candidate. I don't see any candidates right now that would right. unite the opposition or be an alternative uh, to Assad. So I think right now, if you were a betting man, you ought to put your money on Assad <laughs> in the election. Have you heard from any pro-Russian Ukrainians? You've told us about those that uh, are in the opposition. Oh, absolutely. You've, had for, you've heard from pro-Russian Ukrainians. 100%. There are a lot of people who because of cultural, linguistic, familial, and all sorts of other ties, historic ties, absolutely look to, to renew ties. And it's not an insignificant number. Look at the, the polling and the, the uh, numbers in the Russian cultural areas, Oklahoma, or Russia, people who speak Russian. We have a majority of Russian uh, uh, speakers. Yes, absolutely. They identify very strongly with uh, and when you try to take over a country, you normally would want a country with a strong economy and good resources, right? Russia's not getting those benefits in this situation. Absolutely not. And but but, but then when you think about it, in the old Soviet Union, they, the majority of those of those what do they call them provinces, countries, areas, regions, the majority of them probably suffered economically throughout all those decades, right? Hundred percent. So it's not like it's a uh, it's not like a great economy, something common to that area. 
the, the economy, you have a lot of oligarchs, you have people who made a lot of money, and by the way, many of them were appointed to be the governors of the regions now, uh, which is sort of a strange thing, but the but on the other hand, they say, look, they know economy, they know how to run things, they did it, they built up these businesses, therefore they would be uh, uh, very effective in uh, running it. We'll, we'll see how effective they are. Is, does Israel play a role here? Because I, I, I'm assuming part of the reason why you like to play down uh, the extent of anti-Semitic attacks, etc., is because the more they escalate, obviously the more Israel is going to be turned to to play some role or be more vocal about it, I would guess. I do not believe in playing it down, that if it if they were happening, I would certainly... No, no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying you want to emphasize what the real facts are, because it... it, it, it well, because there's so many rumors, there's so many distortions, and so many people doing fundraising, showing horrific pictures, you know, of what allegedly is going on there, because they, they raise money that way, which I find not only objectionable, but I think it's, it's counterproductive and dangerous. But that's another... T- lecture for some other time. Uh, Israel uh, has interest in this, obviously, because the message that is communicated, you know, uh, Israel is somebody, is a country that faces challenges, and that one day could face some coalition of groups that all of a sudden decide that, that they want to, that Ukraine is a good model for how you do, do international affairs. Uh, Israel also feels an obligation to the hundreds of thousands of Jews. They've sent in people to do security, uh, and there's been money given to help provide security for Jewish institutions, but you can't do it for Jewish individuals. Uh, so the, the effort has been to make sure that the government responds, and the government officials have said that they will respond strongly. Uh, they also have a strong relationship with Putin, so they're not going to want to get caught in the middle, and there's no reason why Israel should be in the middle of the political issues. It has a responsibility, it feels, to the to the to the Jewish community there. There was a pretty recent Netanyahu Putin meeting, if I'm not mistaken, right this year, right? Wasn't it this past year? Yeah. This past year. Um, what do you think the population? What, what number of how many people in Israel do you think are from Ukrainian descent? Do you have any clue? I have no idea. No idea. Uh, John Kerry thinks it's a mistake for Israel to demand that the PA recognize it as a Jewish state in order to achieve peace. In fact, interestingly enough. He said the issue was resolved in 1947 when U.N. Resolution 181, which divided Palestine into a Jewish and Arab state, was passed. The resolution, according to Kerry, referred to Jewish states several times. Was 181 enough in terms of recognition, Malcolm, or we would still demand that the PA recognize the Jewish state? Let's say it was enough. But now, given the prominence of this issue and that Kerry himself spoke so strongly about the recognition of Israel as a Jewish state, that that is American policy, that that is, uh, you know, what they would insist on as well, and that called on Abbas to recognize the Jewish state. Now, to back off of it, that takes on a whole new message, a whole new significance, and especially coming two days before, or a day before, uh, Abbas is due to arrive. The day before the Bibi arrived, they had the interview with Goldberg with a lot of very harsh things said, and we don't see the same kind of demands. Now, Kerry was testifying and, and uh, uh, talked about both sides needing to, to come forward, but it's always both sides, and we don't have the kind of specific demands. And here is one of the two items that, that Netanyahu puts down as markers because of the insistence by the PA constantly to say, we will never recognize the Jewish state, which does say something. There's a reason why they're so obstinate and so, so uh, uh, absolute about this and about the right of return. 
and look at, at the detailed responses, talking about what will happen to people who accept it, who don't accept the, you know, to go back to Israel, that right. they will have the rights and their children have the same rights and their grandchildren. And he said nothing will be done, Abbas said, uh, without a referendum, uh, meaning, and he said everybody from Canada to Japan, Palestinians will be able to vote because they're all victims. And, I mean, he constantly takes these positions, which we know undermine the prospects of peace, and yet... There is not one word, not one word about his silence on the rockets, not one word about the corruption, not one word about the continued incitement. And then for, for the, the mistake is that Kerry's message again shows that America is waffling, that America doesn't stand by the principles that they uh, uh, assert. And this is, uh, knowing that this is a fundamental uh, concern, one that he had supported, it's very surprising to see this comment now coming. And saying, well, this shouldn't be a deal breaker. This shouldn't. Is there anything that should be a deal breaker when it comes to the Palestinians? Is there any principle that is really inviolate? And I'm not saying the Jewish state should be a, a make it or break it issue. I'm just saying that given the circumstances, they've already made this into an issue of that status. No question about it. And he has a rough week ahead. I mean, the United States is. I mean, it sounds like veiled threats to Russia and with deadlines. And if Russia doesn't meet those deadlines, I don't know how the U.S. is going to react. Look, we have. Uh, not we haven't been on for a while, but just take the issues that we have to address now. Uh, as you said, this issue in the Jewish state and the whole visit of Abbas coming up, the uh, Venezuela, 28 dead, the Jewish community there facing very severe conditions. The, in Turkey, huge demonstrations, 100,000 people attend the funeral of a 14-year-old killed by the army. And again, a Jewish community we worry about, but the he was hit by a tear gas can that he was on his way to get a loaf of bread for his family. Um, we, we see the lack of trust in the polls in Israel for the Kerry plan providing security and for the U.S. being that the U.S. is pressuring Israel much more than the Palestinians. Um, the expansion of the terrorist activities along Israel's two borders, uh, the uh, Iran shipment going almost unpunished, unresponded to, unnoticed, uh, people certainly uncaring about it, and they continue to talk about it uh, yesterday, wiping off the Zionist uh, entity, and yet we continue, we give them the money, we give them the breaks, we keep talking as if nothing nothing else is, is happening and that they're just, you know, in negotiations, and negotiations obviously so far going nowhere, uh, but they're getting uh, relief, not maybe any amounts. The good news was that we got... Israel, the United States gave $429 million for Iron Dome, and the and, uh, U.S. has co-production on some of the parts, and uh, this is very important for Israel's security, as we saw uh, in the last week. But on every front, you see the Jordanian front uh, problems and heating up because of the judge who attacked a soldier and he was killed and uh, on the border. Who made that? I'm sorry for going back. Who made that decision? That was a congressional, yeah. <clears throat> that was a congressional decision, almost half a billion dollars? Right, congressional decision, but the administration supported. And is that um, is that something that happens annually? When, yes. when Iron Well, Dome? there was a three-year deal that ended, and now this is a renewal of the funding, uh, which is really critical. So, if Iron Dome was to continue, they would need half a billion dollars from the United States every year. It's not every year. Don't forget, they are developing, uh, still in the process of developing. This this buys new units. Uh, Israel doesn't have to every year buy. Uh, as many oh, good right point. Right. Obviously, they need to right. cover the north and the south at the same time, and you know they move them around. And these ro- and these missiles that were hit this week are a result of Iron Dome. Iron Dome took down five rockets 
Israel's working on a new one called Iron Beam, which will be a laser that will take down uh, drones. Uh, the big fear now developing is in, in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah has many drones, and these are exploding drones that they use, uh, drones being unmanned, small aircraft, but they pack them with a huge fire capacity, big bombs, and or they turn into big bombs, and they just uh, shoot, you know fire them across the border. They go, they can target him because you have, in many cases, the ability to see, they, and they will use them to attack uh, targets inside Israel. And, and every time and they... Iron Beam will be able to knock them out of the sky. And you've told us an Iron Dome, every time they shoot it, it's $100,000? $100,000. 100000 Right. Wow. See, well, see, the more they do, I guess it becomes cheaper. Right, but see, it seems, but seems like a bargain when you're saving lives, huh? Just think of how many lives have been saved. Unbelievable. And, and what... I mean, it's really inconceivable when you think about it and the burdens that Israel uh, faces and the... Uh, you know, and if it weren't for the Egyptian clamp down on Hamas, who knows what how That's much right. worse the situation there would have been. That's right. Uh, Malcolm, uh, I have Rabbi Yudin coming up on Shabbos Zacher. Can you give us a 60-second Purim message to wrap up? Parsha Zacher. Just remember what the what the message of Purim, that the Haman thought we were vulnerable, because even though he saw what happened to his great-grandfather Amalek, because he said we were Amapuzar Mufarad, we were a, a divided nation. And the answer, the antidote was Lech Kenosis Kala Yudim, when as to call for all the Jews to come together because it's in unity that we find strength. And at a time when we see these divisions, which get a lot of publicity and a lot of visibility, it's time we come together, look at the threats that we've talked about. These depends on all of us being together and supporting one another and supporting IDF and supporting what Israel, uh, the people of Israel at this time. Excellent message, Malcolm. Thank you so much. Simchat Purim to you, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM.